Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. It gives me a lot of pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Mina Gudi, which I think goes without any introduction, but I will still introduce her just because she's fascinating. Um, so Mina is the founder and CEO of Thirst. Um, she's a global leader, entrepreneur, and adventurer committed to making a difference in this world. Following a 50-year career in climate change, she has set up Thirst, a nonprofit changing the way we think about water. Since its launch in 2012, Thirst has educated more than 2 million students in China, has had more than 600,000 participants in water innovation competitions, and now works with more than 1,000 qualified volunteers and the support of the Chinese government. To bring attention to global water, in 2016, she ran across seven deserts on seven continents in just seven weeks. A self-confessed non-runner, along her runs, Mina interviewed water experts, telling the stories of people affected by the crisis and those working to solve it. Concerned about the pace of change in 2018, she started Running Dry, a campaign involving her running 100 marathons in 100 days for one reason, to make saving water so famous. It's not just the right thing to do, but the only thing to do. Mina has widely recognized of her leadership, named as a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, one of Australia's most influential women, and named by Fortune magazine as one of the 50 greatest leaders in this world. Um, before starting, I would like to start with playing a video, and then we can take it from there. Can we please have a video? Water is life. Without it, we have no existence. Water should mean the difference between today and tomorrow. Without water, we won't be able to power our computers. We won't be able to eat our dinners with our friends and our families. Without water, we have no way of life. Without action today, we will have no water tomorrow. By 2030, experts predict that there will be a 40% greater demand for water than the supply of water available. We don't understand just how big the crisis is. We can't afford to wait until tomorrow or the next day to solve this crisis. You only need to look to places like Cape Town, which is having huge water problems right now. 95% of the water we use every day is outside the home. It is in the plastic bags, it is in the clothing, it is in our food, in the way that we consume. And the really, really great thing about that is that it means all of those things, if we do them more sustainably, make a big impact on our planet's water resources. Sometimes it's the simple things that make a difference, whether it is reducing the time we spend in the shower or turning off the tap when we brush our teeth. Recycling, reusing, all of those things have a huge impact on our daily water consumption. The longer we procrastinate about solving these problems, the bigger problems they will become. People think because I run these crazy distances that I like running. The truth is that I'm not an athlete. I'm just an everyday person who wanted to stand up and make a difference. It's my dream and my vision by the time I leave this earth. We all will have worked together to solve the planet's water crisis.
100 marathons in 100 days is my way of showing all of us and the planet what it means to be 100% committed to something. I'm driven by my desire to change the world. I want a future where there's enough water for everybody forever. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to run as long as it takes. I have got to tell you that the single biggest help that I have had for doing this is you. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what country we're in. We're all connected by the invisible thread of water. The thing that keeps me going is knowing that all of you are behind me, that everybody on this planet is part of the journey. extremely emotional, I think, towards the end. Um, Mina, I want to ask you, I mean, it's very clear to me why water is so important, but I want to ask you why water is so important. Why have you adopted this cause personally after being a you know, corporate lawyer, sort of working at the World Bank, making that shift and making this sort of your life's cause? What has driven you in terms of experiences to this? And I see towards the end you were super emotional. Um, so I can see that this runs very deeply for you. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I think that if it didn't run deeply, I wouldn't be able to do what I do and I wouldn't be able to overcome the adversity and the challenges that face me almost every day in making this change happen. When I grew up in Australia, I grew up through 10 years of drought. We used to put buckets under the taps and t turn the taps off when we were brushing our teeth, take short showers. We used to go to the shopping centre and all the fountains had been turned off and replaced by plotted, potted plants. But it wasn't until the World Economic Forum when I started to get exposed to this issue that water wasn't just a challenge for a country like Australia, water was a challenge for countries across the globe. And that we were all connected to those water challenges in other places through the things that we use, buy and consume every day. So experts predict that in the next 11 years that supply for water will be 40% less than the demand for water that we have now. So, and the situation is only going to get worse the more we want stuff, the more we need stuff. You saw in the video that every single thing we use, buy and consume takes water to make. And I think for me, learning and understanding that, realizing that we have a major water crisis, realizing that it's going to get worse, and realizing that the consequences of that mean our economies will be under stress, mean that people will have challenges was something I couldn't believe, I couldn't understand, I didn't know about, and I thought that was something that we should be talking about. So I set out to make Saving Water famous, to put it on the front page of the newspapers, to put it top of the list of corporates and consumers across the world. And I realized that the only way to do that was by doing something completely crazy. So I went out and started running, even though I'm not a runner. <laughs> Which brings me actually to the next question. You confess just now that you're not an athlete, you're not a runner. I mean, and everything you've done is physically extremely straining. Why did you pick this method of running as this form of sort of giving your message out? So I really wanted to tell stories. I wanted to go to places where people are suffering from water problems and tell their stories. I wanted to create a movement of people, by people, for people. I wanted to go and tell the stories in, in people's words. And let's be clear about this. This is not like my story to tell. This is the story of the farmers in Australia in a place called Menindee who have watched fish die, these massive Murray cod, 30 years old. 
who have been dying, not just one or two of them, but thousands of them. The farmers that live and the people that live in the communities along this river are having to sell their homes. So you drive down these streets and there's just not one for sale sign, there's a street littered with for sale signs. It's terrible what a drought does to a local economy and a local community. You know, I talked this morning about the 23-year-old guy called Christian who lives on a farm and he showed me pictures. We were sitting on the back of a ute in this old tin shed. It must have been about, I don't know, 50 degrees Celsius. It was the, the mercury was saying it was 49 degrees outside. And we sat on the back of this old car and he showed me pictures of his farm and it was lush and green and amazing. And he showed me pictures of his dam that was filled with water. I went 200 meters up the road and I ran across that dam. It is so dry, I could run from one side to the other. This guy literally is hoping for rain because if he doesn't, he has to leave his farm. These are stories that need to be told. These are stories that move me. Yeah, I'm emotional about this because I see the issue and mm -hmm. I see the enormity of the problem that we're trying to solve. And I see how we can survive in our generation, but the next generation to come has a problem. So I started running to tell the stories of those people in the hope that I could then create change in the world. And, and this is actually the theme, who is changing the world? And I'm assuming through these stories, you've met so many people that you feel actually are changing in their own ways. What have you learned from them? Are there some people that sort of have changed the way you think about things? Have, I mean, any of these stories that we can hear about? Yeah, I mean, I've got so many stories of different people along the way. Uh, there's a guy whose name is Hugo, and he lives on the top of a cliff in the Atacama Desert. He read in a book about these people that were changing the world by taking water out of the air. And the more he read, the more he thought, I could do this. Now, to put this in context, this is a guy who's about maybe 60, 70 years old and doesn't have access to technology. He's just read this thing in a book. And he decided that he was going to get big black fishing nets, which he erected on the cliff top of the Atacama. And he was going to try and catch water out of the air. Hugo lives in a place where less than four millimeters of rain fall. He has neighbors that have never ever seen rain come out of the sky. This place is bone dry. But Hugo has succeeded in catching enough water in these fishing nets and the water comes off the ocean below him it goes up in a cloud and sticks into these nets. And Hugo has captured enough water that he's growing fish, he's watering plants, he's supplying, he's supplying plants and tomatoes to local communities and to local markets, and he's making a, making a living out of it. It's a remarkable story in a very unusual place. And there are people, there are Hugos all over the world. And the thing about Hugo that I'm impressed about is not just that he did this, that's amazing, but the level of human ingenuity and innovation in the face of adversity is really quite incredible. We run an innovation program for kids across China. And I have to tell you, when I see the things that these kids come up with, our challenge is always to, like, to, to try to solve a common problem in the home or at their school. The innovations that they develop, the working models at the age of 14 that these kids can come up with that will solve our planet's global water crisis is completely mind-blowing. And I think someone said once a long time ago, it's not what the future holds, but who holds the future. And my impression is that our future will be bright if we let these kids flourish. When you decided to run the 100 marathons, you broke your leg at number 62. Um, I want to show a video and then we go back to the questions. Can we please show the video?
After persevering through days of pain, it came to a point where doctors told me that even if I continued walking, I would cause long-term damage to my leg and may never be able to run for water again. I was absolutely devastated that this happened with only 38 marathons left. Gutted doesn't even begin to describe how I felt. But in that dark moment, something amazing started to happen. People rallied around me. First my mentor and my teammates who stepped up and collectively finished Marathon 63 for me and with me. And then progressively people around the world. People I know and many I don't. People who are logging miles for me all around the world. People who understand that this is a campaign about all of us and what each of us can do to help solve our global water crisis. This campaign is bigger than any single one of us. Together, we can get these marathons done and we can show what it means to be 100% committed to this issue. I'm absolutely humbled by people's generosity and willingness to help solve this water crisis. Just as I can't do this on my own, the water crisis needs a community of people around the world to come together to solve it. I think um, one that comes to mind, the first one that comes to mind, I'm looking at you and then thinking, you know, the hardships that you've gone through physically to do this. This must have emboldened you, might have changed your life completely. And I want to hear that personal side, that person's story of how hard, perhaps lonely, that sort of run is. And how this movement, this movement that you've created has sort of pushed you forward, but also changed you as a person. Yeah. So um, I think it's easy sometimes, you know, I've sat on the, in the audience many times and listened to people talk about the incredible things that they've done and the change that they've made, the things that they stand for. And I think it's really easy to look at people who are in that situation and think, how could I do that? How could I make this change happen? And it's easy to think it just comes easily. And the reality is that none of this comes easily. I'm not a natural athlete. I'm not naturally talented. I don't even particularly enjoy running crazy long distances. I mean, it takes a very special person to <laughs> want to just go out there and run a marathon every day, but enjoy it. So the thing um, I, I think is really not spoken about is just how hard it is to put these things together, how hard it is to do the training, the sacrifices that get made. And in order to do that, you really need to have an immense passion for your goals and objectives in life, for the things that you want to do, for the, for your, the things that you want to achieve. And for me, that thing is water. And you know, I, when I set out, I, I joked on stage this morning about, you know, this is, a part of this is about water, but an even bigger part is about saying, what does it look like to be 100% committed to something? What does it look like to have a passion so great that you're prepared to go to the end of the earth, literally, to make that work? And for me, it's water, but for everyone here, it could be something different. And the reality is once you find that passion, you can go beyond any boundary you thought was existed and achieve the impossible. I agree. You set out to sort of tackle SDG 6, which I think is to a large part is water scarcity, but we just talked about this, you and I, before. It's a bit more than this. What do you think 
needs to happen at every level to sort of get there. I mean, you're, you're playing a huge part of that, but I think if you look at the companies, people, and people's behavior, governments, what needs to happen? I mean, you're still looking at this infancy of this movement. What are sort of your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think um, the first thing that needs to happen is we all need to start to appreciate that water has a value, a value beyond the water that comes out of the tap. It's a value that goes into the economic foundations of our societies and our economies. And for me, that's number one. And number one meaning we need to put it top of our list of priorities for governments and societies and communities, for businesses, for organizations. It should be on the curriculum in every school. We should be explaining to people that without water, there is no life, not because we've got a drought, but because we have nothing, there are no buildings. Look around us here in Dubai. All of this took water to make. Without water, we have no Dubai, we have nothing. So water needs to be number one. And when it's top of the list of the things that we think about, we will start to change our behavior. And we know that because we did, we've done surveys that show education and awareness is key to creating behavior change. And behavior change is key to solving this global crisis. Have you seen some examples from around the world of some successful sort of movements, whether from in schools and embedding this into curriculums or governments that have done some policy changes? Are there some examples that we can even start highlighting at this point? Yeah, I mean, in China, we've had enormous success in the schools in, in really going into communities and schools around, like across the country. So we, we've educated over two million kids. We've um, had over a thousand schools participate in our program. And we've really seen that these kids, as soon as you give them information, they jump out of their chair. You know, we tell them, how many liters of water do you think it takes to make a pair of jeans? The answer is 12,000. And when you tell them this, they leap out of their chairs. They're <laughs> like, what? Explain to me how this happens. And instantly they start talking about recycling programs and reusing programs and how can we fix this and how can we make an impact. And I tell you a really remarkable thing was we sat, um, we created these massive community dragons, these shapes of water dragons made out of kids on the ground. And you know, a thousand, two thousand kids form these water dragons. We take pictures and we blast it out to the media and it's had a lot of, it's been trended in Chinese Twitter universe. And the thing is that these kids sit there or stand and they will say spontaneously, we are young Chinese people and we care about water. And when you hear thousands of kids chanting in one voice, we are young Chinese kids and we care about water, you realize the impact that we can have when we harness the power of the next generation and we include them, not exclude them from trying to figure out the solution. What are the next steps for you? Um, to keep going with this movement. I think we've seen, you've, you've ran rivers, you've ran deserts, and you've yeah. done the 100 marathon. What is sort of your next step now as you think of this? Yeah, it, it's interesting. When I ran across the deserts, I had no idea what I was doing. And the time when I emerged from the sand, shook the grains of sand out of my hair, and I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if that's really had an impact. And I saw what had happened on social media. And all of a sudden, instead of fighting for airtime on BBC and CNN and some of the big media stations, I had an opportunity to talk. Not because I talk about the numbers and the statistics, they're important, but because we get to tell stories about real people in a real environment and the challenges that they're facing. And the first question all the journalists asked me, well, what's next, what's next? And in the deserts, one of the deserts I ran across was um, in South Africa. There's a desert called the Richtersfeld Desert. I had no idea it even existed. Mm -hmm. It's the most biodiverse desert on the planet. There are places in this desert where plants grow that don't grow anywhere else in the entire world. It is 
unbelievable. In this desert, life is granted through a river called the Orange River, which runs through the desert. And on the south side is South Africa, and on the north side is Namibia. And this river has supported not only the life in the desert, but the communities and societies all around it. It has given an existence to tourism operators and farmers. And the plan on this day, when we were running, was to drive, to run and, and take the, to, for the cars, the support vehicles to drive down to the river. I was gonna meet them. We were gonna put the vehicles on a big floating plank, effectively, and float them across and keep running on the other side. Great plan. Until we got there, and the local people were like, you can't go across. What, what do you mean? They said the river levels are so low. The river has dropped six meters in six years. And in that time, we, it means we can't any longer take, this, take the cars across the river. And they, when they pointed up on the riverbank, and you can actually see the marks of where the water used to be, and you stand at the bottom looking at this dilapidated river, the poor thing struggling to live, you realize that you know, this, is a, this is a disaster. When you realize even more so, it's a disaster because the river has been drained to grow grapes in Namibia grapes and as the guys who are growing the grapes said to me grapes are not a food they're a luxury mm. and I stood there at that moment and I said we have to change this we have to figure out how to link all of us to this issue and so I decided I was going to run down six rivers on six continents I was going to run 40 marathons because that represents this 40% gap between supply and demand for water and I was going to tell the story about how we're all linked to these crises that are happening in rivers across the world and everywhere from the Amazon to the Nile, we told stories. We told stories in the Amazon River about flying rivers. There's the transpiration that comes out of trees and goes into the clouds and then falls on Sao Paulo. And because of deforestation across the Amazon, these flying rivers have dried up. So people in Sao Paulo in 2015 literally went for days without water. Fights broke out on the street. Riots broke out on the street because nobody had access to water. You know, these were pretty incredible things to see and to learn. And when I came back and I told these stories, people's all the jaws dropped and they all said, wow. The media said, wow, people said, wow. But still we didn't get enough momentum for change. And I said, we've got a problem here. People don't understand what it means to be 100% committed to something. So I was literally hanging upside down um, at training one day, talking to my coach about what 100% commitment looked like. And he said, why don't you run 100 marathons? I said, I would never be able to do that. That's just crazy. I just don't think I could do it. And he said, isn't that what people say about the water crisis? Isn't that what people say about any kind of big change? I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I'm capable. I don't know if this is something I'm biting off more than I can chew. And so I said, okay, let's make this happen. And that's how the idea came to run 100 marathons in 100 days. So what's next? Um, I really want to unite our world. I think that too often we think that these problems are someone else's problems. These issues are someone else's. I stood on the, on, at the port um, in Uzbekistan and this is a port that is completely dry. The nearest water is 200 kilometers away. It used to be lapping at the edge of this port. The Aral Sea has shrunk 90% in our lifetimes. It is now a little puddle in the middle of a massive desert. Carcasses of ships sit beside the port. And women came and they begged me, please do something about it. Please help us. 
We used to grow cotton and rice in these fields and they're dry. And they're dry because we've overused the water from the river and the water from the sea to grow cotton and rice. And they said, please, we need to fix this problem. Please, we need people to understand when they buy t-shirts, when they buy stuff, that they're buying our cotton, they're buying our water. And I thought, we forget in our little lives just how much we rely upon the work and the environment and the water resources of people in other parts of the world. So the next project that I do, the next big campaign I do, will be around uniting our world as one to solve the biggest issue facing us and facing the next generation, and that's water. That's amazing. I, I have more questions, but I'm probably going to take now questions from the audience because we don't have that much time. So if you guys have any question for me now. in which the water would run out. That happened in 2017. So as you said, this is a real and current crisis. Um, in South Africa, we're a lot more aware, I think, than, than some of the other states of how important this is. But what we've also realized is, yes, you can turn off the taps. Yes, you can, you can get a Jojo tank out the back. Um, but this is, this is bigger than any individual, individual. I mean, we can all do it. My question is, in relation to agri-farming. Agri-farming, as you know, I mean, for, for those that don't, it takes almost 3,000 litres to make one Big Mac, one hamburger. Um, and in today's society, the, the major farmers, the major conglomerates, control the water usage in a large part. What headway, what, what, what movement have you got with, with large, you know, and I'm going to just use a name like McDonald's, and I'm not pointing them out singularly, but what, how have you managed to deal with the corporations and their water usage, not just everybody else turning off taps? So a couple of things, just on the whole burger thing, just to put it in perspective, it's the same as taking a two-hour shower. So I think none of us ever took a two-hour shower in our life, and yet that's <laughs> the same as one burger. Um, so just I think that my observation is that a lot of companies actually know that there's a water crisis and they know that their supply chains are at risk. They know that their business, there's a huge risk to their business. They have a couple of challenges. The first one is really knowing and understanding what to do and how to transform their entire ecosystem and their supply chain and what steps to take to make sure that they don't have massive job losses, to make sure that they don't have a drop in their share price, to make sure that they can still continue to supply the same product to consumers across the world. So the flip side of that is how do they actually get consumers to change their mindset and do things like encourage them to make more alternative plant-based protein, for example, more veggie burgers in McDonald's. And that's a consumer issue. So I think that the, you can't separate the corporate from the consumer. So the we need to educate consumers to say, instead of going to Gap or H&M and buying a regular T-shirt, I'll go to H&M and Gap and all the others and I'll buy a T-shirt, but I'll buy the 100% recycled cotton T-shirt. Because we know that 100% recycled cotton uses zero water. The cotton was already grown, it was already manufactured, they just whip it into a new kind of T-shirt. And the irony about that is it looks the same, it feels the same, and it costs less to produce, and it takes zero water to make. So we need consumers to change the mindset about their what they want and how they want it and realize we can't continue to do things the way our parents and our grandparents did them. 
It's not about consuming less, it's about consuming differently. Like what alternative advice? I wanted to have a cup of tea. I've got my cup of tea. I didn't need it in a plastic container. I can have it in something that's completely reusable. So I think that we need to, we need to just reconfigure. We need a campaign that involves companies everywhere saying let's get consumers to rethink things. So I think, I think that that's a, that's a really big part of it. There's a, oh, yes, so I think maybe we can, and then we can, yeah. Sorry, apologies, <coughs> thank you so much. And just to follow up on that and what you were saying about the consumer link, um, I'm not sure if you've spoken to Dame McAnnan Arthur, and she's got this theory about the circular economy and we're all living on this linear economy. Um, do, you, do you collaborate um, with foundations like that? In, in, in your goal? Because I think, for myself anyway, that's the only way forward, is, is a circular economy. Should, should we take both questions and then maybe you can answer together? Sure. Thank you, Mina. Um, my question would be, how do we use teachers and schools to promote this? What suggestions would you do to to better use teachers and uh, schools to do this reconfiguration and, and this relearning of, of how we face things and do things. Yeah. Okay. So on the on just on the question, um, just on the food thing, I think it's really easy for us all to point the finger at companies and at policymakers and say they are the ones that need to change. There was um, a piece of research that came out last week um, through the World Water Assessment Program that's talking about how food, the water that goes into the food that we eat, and they found that 60% of all the water that goes into the food that we eat actually is, is generated through small-scale farmers. So we also need to transform the small-scale farming operations across the world, and that's a much bigger challenge than, than companies. Um, and I do think that that is something that we need to address and that's an education issue too because everybody is connected through our education systems. Um, on the collaboration, the only way change works is when we all collaborate together. So uh, we, you know, I talked this morning, individually we can make an impact but together we change the world. And it's completely right. You guys have an old African proverb. If you want to go slow, go together. If you want to go fast, if you want to go slow, go alone. If you want to go fast, go together, right? We need to create collaborative opportunities across the globe. So um, Dame Ellen MacArthur has, an amazing, has made amazing um, headway into the circular economy space. If, when we have a circular economy, we also have water efficiency. Some, yes, I, I haven't yet collaborated with her, but I would love to do that. So we should maybe have a conversation about that later. Yeah. On the question about um, education and what we can do in the education space. So I think an absolute key to creating change is changing our attitude towards water. And if we do that at a very early age, we f create fundamental long-term and systemic change. So I would love to see water education getting a value, getting people and kids especially to understand and value water incorporated into curriculum everywhere. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is we need also to encourage kids to innovate, to think differently because this is not just about valuing water, this is about creating new systems of change, creating technology, creating solutions. And we've become too fixed in our box. It, we need kids. We've done some amazing um, projects with kids and we've done hackathons with companies. So we've put kids and companies, the kids are, like these are not 18-year-old kids, like 12, 13-year-old kids in the same room as companies. And companies emerge out the other end 
shaking their heads just saying why did we never think of that like mm-hmm. why why did we always think in this linear way instead of thinking in a circular fashion so i think that encouraging kids to innovate is the second plank in order for us to do both of those things we need to create a much better open source system of educational tools and materials that are easily accessible and able for teachers to teach and learn i think it's too easy to say we need to include it but not provide the materials to make it easy to do that so one of the things i really want to do is to create an open source platform of educational materials that are available in multiple languages where teachers anywhere anytime can access and download teaching materials school materials curriculum class information and really get access access to best in class educational materials um the final piece about that is i'm a firm believer in encouraging kids to learn by doing or learn by participating and i think that there's an enormous opportunity in some of the places that i've been to create opportunities for kids to learn directly from the people on the ground to create open platforms open schools where kids in classrooms can actually just put up their hand and ask someone ask those women that i spoke to in the RLC what was it like when you were growing up ask the fishermen who used to fish 10 meters away and now has to travel in a car 200 kilometers to get to the nearest place that he can go fish imagine if these kids can ask best in class scientists about what it's like to find the dinosaurs that used to drink the same water that they did these are really special opportunities and we have the technology now to make that happen we just need the resources to be able to 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 deliver it to classrooms around the world i think this right question there mina on your um incredible journeys around the world what what have you learned about engaging people as citizens as consumers in the water issue because i think people have been you know talking about water for some time and yet it hasn't quite clicked with so many people how how they can act particularly if they're not close in south africa or if they're not close to the aral sea obviously you know last year a couple of years ago we had that the kind of breakthrough moment on plastics when you had el macarthur's you know key message of there's going to be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050 and at the same time you know had the incredible kind of public engagement through the blue planet and the imagery there what but what have you learned about how um how we can bring water to life for people in that way and you know i agree with you about cheek trying to treating companies and consumers together as one how can we really accelerate that that conversation in a, in a kind of engaging not a worthy way yeah i think that um i was having a conversation with some un agencies the other day and they said to me the squeakiest wheel gets the most airtime that gets the most attention and water has not been a squeaky wheel we've been left behind we were talking about in the context of why isn't the un providing more support to some of the refugees that are trying to cross the border and don't have enough access or don't have any access to sanitation and hygiene don't have access to water and i think one of the issues is that we've been too complacent in assuming that someone else is going to take on this issue of water we need to shift the dialogue we should be talking about water in the education sector in the finance sector in the administrative sector we need to be talking about it with companies and consumers and also policymakers that once we start to elevate water once we can start to talk about how we can make saving water famous so famous it becomes as you said not just the right thing to do but the only thing to do and embedded into our decision making then we'll create change but i think the trick is how do we actually elevate it and big part is being it being the biggest squeakiest wheel and that means engaging more people and getting more people to talk about it i've said for a long time i would love 
to read one day on the front page of The Economist or Time magazine that water has become Time magazine's person of the year. It's become the <laughs> most mentioned thing, the most mentioned that year. Because once we actually achieve that, then we'll start to create and generate solutions. One of the other things I think that is um, interesting element of the conversation that you've just mentioned between consumers and, and businesses is how do you activate people beyond getting them to turn off the tap? Because I think it's demoralizing when you, you know, every day you turn off the tap and you're like, well, how much of a difference does it make? The reality is turning off the tap saves four gallons of water each time. It's not going to change the world. But it does change mindset. It's the same as making your bed each day sets you up for success. Turning off the tap each day connects you with water. And that's important because of the connection that it gives you. We need to find ways to give people access to a thing that they can do that does make an impact. And on day 62, when I broke my leg and I started to watch over the next few days this consumer movement, these people were starting to run. They went out there and did, in real life, did miles and blogged and tweeted and shared this with others around the world. Not just one country, two countries, 50 countries and territories, including Antarctica. Our Antarctic marathoner mm -hmm. is sitting right here. Um, and over 160 cities. It was unbelievable. And what was incredible about it is, was just an opportunity for people to participate in making global change, to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. And I think in the water space, we've lost sight of that and the importance of that. And somehow, if we're going to really make saving water famous, we need to include everyone, everywhere, regardless of their socioeconomic background, their country, or, or regardless of their age. Everyone needs to participate in finding a solution because we have no time to sit by and wait. The time to act is, is now, and we need everyone to be part of that. Okay, if there's no any other questions, Mina, I wanna thank you so much, but I also wanna end with asking you one last question. If this was a platform for you to ask, ask for support from us, from governments, from companies, what would that ask be and how can we help? So I think that no matter who you are, there are easy things to do. Turn off the tap when you brush your teeth every day and just participate in saving water. That's the first thing. Everybody can blog and tweet about water to share the messages about water with their friends and families and to try to figure out ways to create a low water existence from refusing single-use plastics. That's a really easy one. Most people don't even think about the dispose just here. All these disposable coffee cups, <laughs> not saying anything, but these disposable coffee cups, just no, every single coffee cup takes 200 litres of water to make. You use that for about 10 minutes. It is non-recyclable because it has a plastic inside and a paper outside. It's going to go in the bin and then it's going to go to a landfill and it will live in the landfill for longer than you lived on this planet. So there are small things that every one of us can do in our daily lives, not throwing out food, taking only the food that you want to eat, really thinking about everything that you use, buy and consume. So I think that there are easy things that all of us can do. On a bigger level, to really create fundamental change, we need to create a platform for educational resources that is open source across the world. And I think that's really going to be incredibly mm -hmm. important to shifting and changing the next generation. I think it's important that we do get the messages of hope out there from people on the ground. So if there are a couple of things, firstly, it's what can you do in your daily lives every day to reduce your own water footprint? Second, if there's a way that you're interested in or want to get involved in creating this open source platform, I'd be really interested in talking to you. And the third is 
I'm really keen to continue to tell the stories of the people, by the people, for the people. So if you have access to stories in your own countries, or if you know anybody who's interested in helping us to tell these stories out to the broader community, but particularly for kids, then I'd be really interested in having a conversation about that too, because here is the real part about this. Mm. We can live for now, but the children of the future, and they're the ones that we need to make a better world for. My hope and dream is a world where there's enough water for everyone forever, but it's only going to happen if we work together to make that happen. Thank you so much for inspiring us, and thank you so much for, for giving us this talk. Thanks, everyone.